podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. And Phil, hello to you, sir. We're still savouring another fine edition of the Tour Championship, aren't we? And another victory for the brilliant Neil Robertson. Yep, good afternoon. Nice to be here as always. And yeah, superb tournament, superb final. What a performance in Robertson. Uh, really did a job on O'Sullivan there. Very, very impressive with the uh, World Championship coming up so soon. It really was another a smashing week of snooker to enjoy. But I can tell you that Phil and I are even more excited than usual to be with you on Talking Snooker, because we really do have a very special guest for you this week. It's a genuine coup for us, this. We are delighted to be joined by the chairman of World Snooker Tour and one of the most recognisable and powerful people in British sport. It's Barry Hearn. Barry, thank you so much for being with us. How are you? Hell of a builder. I hope I don't let you down after that, but uh, I'm very well. I mean, I'm... I'm going through my childlike years now, as I get older, of being excited about things. And everything now we're seeing that light, hopefully at the end of the tunnel. And uh, it's a bit like looking forward to Christmas and knowing that it is really just round the corner, I hope. Yeah. And we'll get onto loads about the World Championship and the Crucible shortly. But what did you make of the Tour Championship? I mean, we're blessed with so many wonderful stars in this game, aren't we? But... Neil Robertson's special. When he's hot, he's hard to stop, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I'm just pleased with the overall concept of the Tour Championship because I think it epitomises what we've always tried to do at World Snooker. Um, we try to remove as many barriers to entry as possible so that we can operate under a diverse environment um, without those, those barriers. Uh, but we also recognise the ability has to be rewarded. You know, we're not in this uh, in this sport to maintain mediocrity. So we have to set the bar a bit higher year on year. And when you look at the, the Kazoo series and how that evolved, it was built on that basis of the two-year ranking system is, is fine because it rewards consistency. And I think that's important. Uh, it takes, if you have a, a run of bad form, uh, still got a chance to, to maintain your position. But the one-year list coming in gave us a whole different spectrum. It gave us the ability, if you like, to the entire membership to lay down the challenge of how good are you? Are you in this game to survive or are you in this game to add a little bit of sparkle to what's already an exciting game full of characters full of people that can play to a very high level who have earned their place. In other words, the challenge is, are you ready to take the shoes of someone that's been there and done it and bought the T-shirt? And the one-year system does exactly that. And of course, coming out down to, you know, top 32 in, in the World Grand Prix, top 16 in the players, and then the finale. The best eight players on the planet on current form going head-to-head over a more traditional, longer distance. In today's age, we have to adjust our commercial evolution into the mindset of younger audience that want faster results. They don't want to be there for months. They want to be there for hours or sometimes minutes. But we can't have everything as a shootout, one frame. We know that. But what we've got to do is have a diverse plan for our tournaments that appeal to different segments of the sporting fan base. But, of course, the Tour Championship rocked in just at the level we want it at, exactly the right time. The last major tournament for the big one, World Championships. And it's no doubt that I have, as usual, borrowed other people's good ideas. (laughs) I based this series on the FedEx Cup golf because people talk about it all year round and it maintains itself. And the Tour Championships has has delivered on that. And when you do get the best eight together, you do find that you've got a level of entertainment that you can only dream of. Neil Robertson came into this tournament rested, I think, not having had the best run in the last few months, opted out of a few tournaments. Ronnie O'Sullivan, bless him, for a man that's 
talked about retiring more times than Frank Sinatra. He's <laughs> actually playing more snooker than I could ever believe, and I welcome him because he's such a fabulous player and such a gifted individual. But clearly, Robertson from day one was not going to be denied. I thought he, from my lack of technical abilities, he seemed to hit the ball better. He was much more consistent. His break building is phenomenal. He just seems to be addicted to making century breaks. And of course, the way I would eventually evaluate, not just on the spectator plus, because I watched a lot of it myself, the figures on ITV4 Q. Yeah, you had a million million people watching on on Saturday night. That is stunning. Congratulations. It's a stunning figure for a small network, which shows you that people will find the network to watch their chosen sport and will stick with it because it's entertaining. So, all in all, massive success. New sponsor delighted. ITV delighted. Robertson O'Sullivan final doesn't get much better. A great precursor to the World Championships and another illustration how this sport can be so entertaining in what is a very challenging world. And with Robertson turning in that kind of performance, it was, it was quite similar to the performance we saw John Higgins turn in at the Players' Championship as well, sort of demolishing the field and then beating O'Sullivan like he did in the final. Um, obviously seen a good season from Ronnie, Judd Trump doing stuff like that. There's always Mark Selby, there's always a few other contenders. It's really sort of boiling up nicely for the Crucible, isn't it? I think it is. And I think if you look at the Crucible and beyond, Phil, you know, the game's in good shape. I mean, we've been waiting for this Chinese invasion for 10 years. Uh, it's taken a little time for them to adjust. I think there are half a dozen young Chinese players who are ready now to make a real big... I mean, we saw it with Yang Bintao in the Masters, but Zhu Yu Long... Udong, I mean, there's a half a dozen of them that will give anybody problems on their day. We're also seeing, you know, the lovely Jordan Brown win, you know, which was, where did that come from? But that sends out such a clear message that don't give up. You know, if you've got the ability, don't look, don't, 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 don't just stop dreaming, you know? You, and, and Jordan Brown's win was, I thought, was a big plus in terms of sending out that message. We're, we're, I don't want to get too excited, but we're in probably the best shape this sport's been in possibly ever in terms of the quality of player on view, the avenues for other players to advance their careers, the opportunities that exist, the rewards that exist. And all this in the last 12 months has been done in a COVID environment where most other sports have packed up and gone home. So all credit to the players, the officials and the staff, Nigel Oldfield and his teams, have done an absolutely remarkable job. And we've been rewarded by watching the most entertaining snooker I can remember for some time. Yeah, it's been a superb season. No no question about that. Uh, Phil, I want to focus a little bit on, on one thing that really interests me. Neil Robertson, now 16 calendar years in a row with at least one title. Absolutely magnificent record for consistency. What interests me is how much he may have learned from losing to Mark Selby at the Crucible last year, which just shows you it's not always victories you learn from in sport, is it? It's defeats. And he was very, very clear, certainly talking to me during the week, that he won't be dictated to in that kind of long match again. We'll see the proof of the pudding, the ultimate proof of the pudding will be at the Crucible. But he really seems to have adapted himself maybe now to a new focus on those longer session, multi-session matches, and it worked well this week. We'll see if it does in Sheffield. But I find that so interesting that he seems to have learned so much from that defeat to Selby. Yeah, I mean, he's got a great attitude to learning. I mean, he famously sort of credits that criticism he got from Stephen Hendry about his break building being amateurish. You know, a lot of people would take offence at that kind of comment, but he just went away and worked on it and learned and came back one of the best break builders ever. And yeah, I mean, there's no more clear demonstration that he learned from that Selby loss. I think he's beaten him all four times he's played in this season now. So... Yeah, very, very impressive from Neil. It really was. And we, we thoroughly enjoyed the whole tournament. And perhaps not as many close matches as we've had, certainly in the 2019 edition. The first night, Ronnie O'Sullivan uh, completed the 10-7 win over John Higgins. Then we had Neil Robertson beating Jack Lesowski 10-5. Mark Selby beating Kyron Wilson 10-3. And Barry Hawkins beating Judd Trump. Bit of a turn up there, 10-7. 
In the semis, it was Neil Robertson beating Mark Selby 10-3. And then what a match, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Barry Hawkins. I mean, roll up, roll up. That was Saturday night entertainment beyond, you know, even what we were expecting as, as snooker fans. It was so thrilling. Ronnie 9-6 down, winning at 10-9. And then a fine victory for Robertson. 10-4, it was 4-4 going into the final session. We thought it might go all the way, but hats off to Robertson. Uh, real brilliance from him. And, of course, now we are thinking about Sheffield. But, of course, as Barry intimates there, the, the roadshow keeps rolling on. We've got Championship League over the coming days. And the final group will be on Thursday and Friday, which currently comprises Chow uh, Yulong, Graham Dot, John Higgins, Judd Trump, Kyron Wilson, Ali Carter, and the winner of Group 7, which will take place over the next couple of days. Barry, you're constantly spoiling us. But let's talk now a bit more with you about what many fans are certainly asking us about. And that's the latest on the Crucible. Now, you kindly gave me the story a month ago that you were hoping the World Championship would be used as a pilot event for the return of fans to sport. That's since been confirmed. Uh, we'd like to know, really, is everything still on course uh, for the safe return of fans to snooker at the tournament? And can you maybe confirm how many people will be able to attend each session? Well, I'd love to be able to give you the definitive answer. And I'm afraid the truth of it is I can't... Um, as we speak today, I have a further follow-up call in an hour um, with the government on what does a pilot scheme really mean. Um, I'm, by nature, frustrated as a person. I like things quickly, and this is taking some time to evolve because, obviously, the public health authorities are involved and we're at a crucial time for sport generally, not just snooker. I mean, I was... I've been beaten once, and you know, last time I spent over hundred thousand pounds getting the crucible ready for a pilot event, which was cancelled after twenty minutes from Downing Street. So I'm not bitterly twisted about that, but I do remember the phone call. Uh, I don't want that to happen again. I want this event to be meaningful as a pilot scheme, and these are the conversations you can imagine the conflict that's involved on on the one side. You have government saying we want to get back to normal. We really need to boost the economy. Sport is a major part of that. Uh, we need data. Uh, we need experimentation. We need to know what we can learn from the crucible. That's the side I'm coming from as well. But on the other side, inevitably, you must have Public Health England who say our responsibility is to safeguard lives and people's health. That is part of their fundamental responsibility. So there is this conflict of ideas on what constitutes health and safety. On the one side, we're hearing, and, and we have to say, I've been critical of the government on many things, but I have to say the vaccination rollout has been impressive. I have to say this phone shouldn't be reading, so I'm going to stop that. Um, it wasn't Anthony Joshua, was it? It wasn't, no, no, I think it was... Probably someone much less significant. Who'd been Anthony Joshua? I'd have taken the call. <laughs> as important as you two guys are. But no, we're, 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 we're coming back to looking at now and saying to the practicalities of numbers. And there are lots of fundamental questions I hope will be resolved in our favour over the next few days. But there isn't, I can't give you a strict number. What I would like to see is an evolving system throughout the event where we get data that can benefit not just snooker, but sport, theatres, cinemas. We get meaningful data. That will involve a level of testing of the crowd. Again, at what level, we don't know yet. Um, it will involve post-testing. In other words, people that have been to the Crucible signing up to have another test at home in their own convenience. We need to learn from this disease as to whether have we beaten it? Is it resting? Is it hiding? We don't have enough data on whether a vaccinations they stop you being a carrier of the disease as well. So it's quite complicated. It's not just a question of saying, uh, you know, let's put half half the people in there, a third of the people, quarter of the people. We're not governed by commercialization here because we're all in this boat together to learn for the future. But we do need everyone to take a common sense approach. I, you know, if we, the system I would like to see brought in would be round one is maybe a social distance system plus 
evidence of either vaccination or negative test. Round two might be a percentage occupants, maybe 50% occupants. Um, maybe quarterfinals, semis and finals might be, let's go for it. Let's have a full crowd and let's really get some data that comes back from that. But subject to testing. The question is, if we are in an environment where everybody in the building has had a negative test, can we then go back to the next level of normality? And that's what we're trying for. But I can see the side of Public Health England saying, yes, but even with a test, we can't be 100% secure. And no system is 100% secure. So we are asking ourselves, are we ready to roll at small risk into a deal where we get data which can set the trend and set the subjects for future events across a whole range of activities. That that will be that will be clear, and I hope everyone's going to have common sense. Nothing can be perfect. Nothing can be perfect in these days. But we have proved over the last 12 months that our COVID-19 policy has been exemplary, and we have achieved so much more than virtually any other sport out there. I mean, even beyond the higher echelons of Premier League football, we have maintained some, some amazing restrictions. But time will tell, and it's a decision that has to be made quickly. Uh, it sounds, I mean, the idea of full capacity, sounds like you're really shooting for the stars there. Is, is it a, a question of sort of aiming as big as possible and sort of probably expecting them to come down a bit on that? Well, I'm always going for a goal, you know, because yeah. that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Uh, I just think that there's a common sense level where you should experiment. We have 17 days, 40-odd sessions of snooker. We will never have a better opportunity to collect data and experiment for the future of all indoor events. It's a question of how far we're allowed to go, but in the, in the ultimate dream would be to end with some type of total capacity just to round off the data and its collection. And, and Barry, what fans are asking, a lot of them is, with regards to the testing, that yeah. they'll have to get that off-site, will they? And they'll have to go with evidence? <laughs> well, there, again, there's no clear definition at this stage, but I'm expecting it imminently. Hmm. I mean, there is, you know, there, there's, there's lots of ways you can approach it. Have you had your vaccine? Hmm. Is it more than three weeks ago when you had your first jab? So one of the specialists tell me that's when immunity kicked in. Uh, have you had an off-site test? Have you a certificate? In other words, like a foreign traveller now, if you travel around the world, you have to take vaccination certificates with you that have been done within the last three days. Uh, is there, are we to be allowed a rapid test unit built at the crucible, which I'm quite capable of doing, so that if you did come with neither, you could have a rapid test and a result within 10 minutes. The most important thing is that you're trying to make sure that everyone in that building has established a certain level of immunity, at the same time appreciating that it won't be completely foolproof. And, and with regard to, you know, you, you know better than anybody, snooker fans are, are passionate people. Some of them will go for the whole tournament or they'll plan to. Yeah. How often do they need to be tested? Is it every couple well, I mean, basically, you're going to need to test every three days if you're going to go for the whole tournament. I, I think that will be a minimum requirement. You know, if you're taking, if, you're, if your entry on day one is with a, a vaccination within three days, then there will be a certain amount of time when you will require a second test. Again, it's on, on a public health and safety basis because it's possible that you may have contracted subsequent to your previous negative test. A lot of this is, uh, is laid out formula. A lot of it is suggestions from public health. As I say, as much as I'm passionate about getting many people in it and collecting as much beneficial data as possible, I will be led by the science, as they say, and I obviously no one will do anything without the full consent of public health. And do we know how much of it's going to be a, a bubble in Sheffield? Or is it going to be more like it was last year and they were sort of okay to roam around a little bit? Yeah, that, I mean, again, you've, the full bubble context doesn't really work. I mean, obviously we're taking floors in hotels and things like that. Players will be tested, officials will be tested on a regular basis. Um, but it's not the, the Milton Keynes bubble where you literally are locked in your room and, and that's, that's it. I think we are easing ourselves out of that situation. Uh, but again, we'll be led by the numbers, of course. Right. I mean, 
Barry, what you've done in snooker the last years is, is, is brilliant, no question about it. But there are people that will say, not just you, but anybody that's having crowds for indoor events at this time, that it's too soon, it's too much of a risk. What would your response to that be? I don't know what too soon is. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know when you, you turn around and say, OK, we're going back to normal, for example. You know, when the whole country, at the moment, 60% of this country, uh, uh, 60% of, uh, of the adult population of this country has been vaccinated. Now, when is 100% of the adult population that too soon? I don't know, because you can always make a case or the data has not been proven over a period of time to completely clear us from people carrying a, a, a disease without. It does come a time when I'm afraid to say, and I'm not being heartless because, I mean, I had COVID myself. It's not at all pleasant, horrible. And, and I, I wasn't as bad as, thank goodness, as many more people. The world carries on. We have to make a call on where we want to go. Now, if it's the view that we're going to be locked away for two years, and then if that's the law, that's what we'll do. I think the evidence says that we are entering a period of coming out of it. And I don't really take too kindly to people that have opinions with no educated knowledge. So for someone to tell me it's too soon, I say to them, please show me your doctorate that I can take your opinion serious. This is not rumour, gossip and intrigue. We are led by the science. We are led by people that have a lot more knowledge than we do. And we have no choice but to go along with what they say. I hope, as the government hopes, we are approaching a return to normality. It's the speed of that return that I don't have enough detail on yet. Uh, I guess, I mean, obviously you said you're led by the people who have the knowledge. I guess you feel like you've learned a lot over the last year. I remember I speak to you this time last year, I think it was, and you'd just been in a meeting about air conditioning units in Sheffield hotels. I remember thinking, can't imagine anything more boring. I'm glad it's you, oh. not me. <laughs> well, it's, a bit, it's a bit like that now. We're still looking at ventilation analysis and God knows what else. You see, what people, the, the average fans don't really know. They, they're snooker fans. They want to come and watch their heroes. They want to watch a great game of snooker. They have very little knowledge of the time, the effort, the investment that has to go into maintaining the survival of sport. And, you know, I've, I've been inundated on Twitter for the last few days. How much longer is it going to take you to get these tickets out? Things like that. Well, I can assure you there's 24 hours in a day. Most of them, pretty well all of them are being used up one way or another, trying to get this together. But it's not a straightforward operation. It is extremely complicated. And the, the average fan who basically says, oh, I paid 30 quid for my ticket, you know, this is outrageous. I can't book a hotel in Sheffield. You know, there's all these other arrangements, logistical arrangements. It's a mountain to climb. But it's a, a mountain that we've climbed a few times over the last 12 months. And whilst, whilst we haven't actually got to the top, we're a good way past base camp. So, you know, we, we don't give up very easily at World Snooker. Lovely. And you mentioned the hotels there. I don't know what the situation is with people staying over in Sheffield. Do we know? Well, at the moment, of course, you can't stay in a hotel unless you are a key worker or you've got special dispensation. There is a move afoot. One of the things that are being considered and evaluated is whether purchasing a ticket would give you the equivalent of key worker status to stay in a hotel. And there was a move at one stage to restrict the crowd just to residents of Sheffield which is obviously not something that I was in favour of. Um, so it's constantly evolving, but because of the time is also fast approaching when we will be looking, not just at qualifiers, we'll be looking at the World Championships itself. So this is a decision. I think that this week is the end of the decision-making process. One way or the other, everyone has to be in accord the way forward by the end of this and that extends travel arrangements to hotel arrangements to testing arrangements it's a volume of work to get through but we have the people ready to do it 
Well, that's great. I mean, as Phil's hinted there, a lot of this is, I'm sure, quite boring for you. We want to ask you loads more about snooker things <laughs> because it's not just about the pandemic. But maybe one general question. Is the pandemic the worst thing you've faced in all your years and decades in sport, in sport promotion, in business? And, you know, I know you've taken a big, finan- massive financial hit. How much longer could, could this go on and you continue to um, sort of be viable? How, you know, how much longer could you survive a crisis like this? Yeah, I mean, the answer to your first question is without doubt, in my, what, uh, nearly 50 years, 45 years plus of, of sports promotion, this is without doubt the hardest period of trying to promote live sport. I don't think I've, we've had, a, I think I've done three recessions. They all battered me a bit, but I got through. Um, this has been, there's no, you know, we, we sat together as a group when this first began. I have an office in Shanghai and an office in Beijing. We had some rumour that something was happening in January, February time, that things weren't quite right. No one really foresaw the disaster of this pandemic, both in government or, or at our level. I mean, we just thought it's another flu bug. Um, the last 12 months have been costly financially, but not anywhere near the level that put us in any danger because we've run a good business over the years. We're a sustainable, cash-rich business that always waits for a rainy day. Like most working-class people, when you get a few quid, the first thing you don't want to do is give it back. So uh, we run businesses like that. We, you know, we have reserves. Virtually no other sport, by the way, or very few other sports are in our position of strength. So we were fortunate that we had those old Victorian standards of saving a couple of quid for a rainy day. And it's not been raining, it's been bloody pouring down. So it's been tough. In a strange way, I have found it amazingly motivational. Now, I do love a challenge anyway. I'm quite a competitive person, as you probably don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't like to come second. I like to win every argument. I like my own way. And this bloody pandemic has got in my way. And, you know, you mustn't upset Bazza too often because he's dangerous. So <laughs> I've found it, you know, the, the, the creativity in your head of how we get around it, how we solve the problem, rather than just give up and, you know, ignore the reality of the situation. You know, God, God has put us in this position. It's our job. No one else is to get out of it. Uh, I've been inspired by people around me that have rolled up their shirt sleeves and said, excuse my language, but balls to it. You know, we're not, apart from the fact we're British and we're obviously a superior nation, you know, we just don't give up, do we? This is like World War, whatever. Um, the Blitz came to the East End of London. They never gave up either, and we're not going to give up with it. So, putting the Winston Churchill language to one side, what we've achieved fills me with pride. And although it's been a difficult time, I think I'm more proud to be chairman of World Snooker than I've been before, simply because of winning against all odds is is a special type of whether you're playing sport or administering sport. And and we've done that, and we're going to continue. We will come out of this pandemic as a much stronger sport because we've concentrated more on maximising our off-table commercial income, looking at our digital streaming rights, expanding our business across the world, digitally rather than traditionally. And and we are a stronger business now. Uh, You know, clearly that we've lost the Chinese prize money for a year, and I'm not sure when that will be back. It may start to come back this year, if not 2022. But one thing's for sure, it will come back. Our digital figures in China are huge. Um, our overall TV ratings are probably 25% up. A lot of that because there's nothing else on. A lot of that because there's a lot of people at home. Okay, I'll take that. But, you know, along the way, we've grown as a business and we've grown as people. We've shown them character and the refusal to give up. There'll always be knockers out. There'll always be people that know better. But they don't have the experience to go through these type of times. I do, and I've, uh, I won't say I've enjoyed it because it's been a disaster for so many people. But I found it motivating to keep business alive. And, and I know that we've survived far better than most others. Mm. 
I, I don't know about Phil Haig. I never noticed you want your own way, Barry. I've, ne- I've, ne- no. I've never. That's ne- <laughs> I've, I've never. Now I, I want to ask you about a few other things. I know Phil does as well. The first thing: when did you find out Stephen Hendry had drawn Jimmy White? Were you watching on television? Oh, no, someone phoned me. I couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, you know, go back on it. I'm on. Hendry is an enigma, right? I mean, I've known him since he was a, a wee bear, you know. <laughs> and he's a stroppy little boy. He just, he liked winning. He loved winning. And he was so, such a great player. I mean, who else would retire when you're still in the top 16, you know? And I told him at the time, I don't, this is a mistake. And he never agreed with me. And he'll always do what he wants anyway, because he's very, he's, he's, his, he's his own man. He's always sort of, in a way, he's sort of gutted at me, you know, that someone with so much God-given talent walked away. And he walked away because he couldn't dominate. He, he could still win, but he couldn't dominate. And that wasn't good enough for him. But I, in a way, I sort of admire him for that, you know. I mean, Davis played on for years and years, perhaps longer than he should have done, but mainly because his dad wanted him to do it. And I understood that, and I walked to that. So everyone's different. Um, this has been in the back of my mind all the time about Hendry. What, what are you doing, son? You know, you're a great player. And we were just having a game of golf in September, and halfway, I got him halfway around because the worst thing you can ever do is play golf with me because I've got you. Captured <laughs> for 18 hours, you know. You can't walk off, can you? And I'm in your ear. And half, you know, so halfway around when we're at the furthest point from the clubhouse, so we couldn't just walk in. I started on him, you know. What are you doing? What is what that? And I could see a little twinkle in his eye. And I said to him, look, you know, you're going to look back when you're old and grey like me and grandchildren on your knees. And they're going to say, what did you do during COVID, Dad? And you're going to say, I went nuts in home. <laughs> and he said, I mean, Stephen turned around and said, yes, I thought we said when do you want an answer? I said, any time tomorrow. But actually, I like it today. And I knew I, I knew he was in, you know, because you, you can't take away that competitive sparkle. And, of course, when he came in, and he's, you know, typical Hendry. He's not going to play till he's ready or to everybody. He's going to do it his way. He's always been like that. That's why he's such a great player. So, you know, apart from the Gibraltar Open, he's, he hasn't had any match practice, but... You could bet your life he's working his socks off behind the scenes because that's the nature of the man. And then the draw comes out. Well, listen, I've had people saying to me, Bazza, that's got to be the biggest fixed draw of all time. You know, <laughs> I wish, I, and honestly, if I'd have even dreamed of it, I, thought, I would have felt ridiculous. You know, it was like inventing something that was from another planet. It's the best draw ever. <laughs> And I can't wait for those two scoundrels to get together. <laughs> must be, must be game. Do we know if they're sticking it on the TV or is it still just on the uh, on the oh, Eurosport? Yeah. You know, I'm having this conversation with Eurosport. Eurosport own the rights. You know, BBC own the rights in the UK. Eurosport own the rights. I'm trying to get. I, I would like it on more than just the the Eurosport app. Um, but of course, they're a little bit possessive of their own mm. rights. So it's a struggle. I'm nagging. I'm nagging. I'm trying my best. Um, it, deserves, it deserves to be on a bit, on a more open platform. But of course, if you're a right owner, you have the final call. I understand that. Yeah, surely. Big viewing figures there. Um, I mean, you mentioned it before, but was it starting to wind you up that you hadn't played yet? Since yeah, you given him that card? I know, yeah, but I knew he was going to do it. <laughs> I mean, look, I think all great sportsmen are different to everybody. You know? That's what makes them great. Personalities, character. You know? And they're selfish. Great sportsmen have to be selfish. By the way, great business people are selfish as well. Put myself in that category. One is I'm definitely great. And two is I'm 100% selfish because I have a clear understanding of how I want to do things. Hendry has a very clear understanding on how he wants to do things. I kept waiting for him, you know. When are you, pl- when are you playing? When are you playing? When I'm ready. When I'm ready. And that's it. It's a bit like Davis as well. They're immovable objects. And you have to applaud them for that because it makes them different. And that's why they got great in the first place. 
Will there be wild cards going forward? Will, will you continue that trend for people like Jimmy? Yeah, of course. Yeah, listen, I mean, I know I, I, I do get a little bit criticised for it, especially because everyone, you know, I, I, I believe in quality. I don't believe in mediocrity. I believe in ability. And, and obviously, if I'm inviting old players that maybe maybe don't have that quality anymore, you can get criticism. And I think the criticism is well found. But there's a few principles in life that overshadow all of that. One is, what do I owe you? What do I owe you? Now, I'm sorry, Nick, I don't owe you anything, so you're out of this conversation. <laughs> what I owe Jimmy Why? What I saw with my own eyes, I saw the game and in Southeast Asia. I was proud to be part of that process. What I saw in Stephen Hendry is a great player that hit a level that other people could only dream of. And it comes down to that ultimate belief in what do you owe someone and you never, as a proper person, ever forget what you owe. So Jimmy White, as far as I'm concerned, while he has the appetite, the game is in his Stephen Hendry, the same applies. And you have to take that into account. Even, and I'm not saying he's at the same level as, as Stephen Hendry, but Marco Fu has had a nightmare with travel. And you, your common sense says you owe, the, you owe it to be fair to people. Uh, and this is not an easy game to play. It's not an easy game to get good at. It's not an easy game to enhance your career. You've got to earn your place. But some people have already earned their place. That will never be ignored by me. I think it came up a few times um, with the Invitational cards and with the two women's cards this this season come in. Um, mm. And people sort of compared it to darts, how likes of Barney had to go through Q School, Lisa Ashton had to go through Q School. I think I saw a tweet from you saying, or someone asked, why is it different? And you just say, we don't do it like that in darts. Is, is there a reason for the separation? Yeah, I mean, every sport's different. You know, I mean, the, the thing is, what, there is no standard form uh, and you have to take into account a lot of commercial realities as well. Uh, again, snooker is one-off standalone sport and has its own rules, regulations, and also has its own commercialisation as well, which is sometimes overlooked. Art is an entirely different sport and has an entirely different attitude. There will be some overlap on certain things, as we've said, with, with golf. New school uh, existed at golf, and now exists at snooker, and it exists in darts. Other things are different. Um, I think we were very harsh on Barney, bearing in mind his contribution to the game, but it was justified because with a game like darts, you can embarrass yourself by, by literally... You know, there's a phrase in sport, two donkeys make a great race. Uh, and that's true. But one donkey, one excellent partner, makes a really embarrassing race. So you have to be very careful about that. And it's a, when you look at the Tour Championships, you said earlier, some of the games weren't close. That's to be expected because of the level you're playing at. And if one player is slightly below that level, the other player is playing slightly above the level. It's a one-horse race. But it's all about the standards. If you and I are playing darts, I'm not sure how good your darts are. Mine's poor. Um, it would be quite exciting. It would be quite exciting because after 50, 60 darts, we'd be on double one. <laughs> and that's two donkeys. If I was playing Phil Taylor, it wouldn't be exciting at all. It would be embarrassing if you follow the drift, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, I mentioned it before, the women's cards as well. We, we've spoken it on here before. Um, re really positive move. We're big fans of it. but I think, that, I think the women's cards are slightly different. Uh, well, it is entirely different. You know, whereas Jimmy and Stephen Hendry are paybacks, if you like, for past contributions and, and, and excellence. I think the women takes a different role. Impartially, it's those two women are the dominant in women's which is which is fine. Doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, they've had chances against men before and they're not delivered. They've got to be better. I like the idea in, in snooker, and uh, this works in darts as well, of having a gender neutral sport where we don't get plugged into watching mediocrity just because it's a sexual origination. Uh, 
Uh, I like the idea of level playing fields and I like the media attention that every time an upset comes along, it's big news, isn't it? Whether it's mm -hmm. or Um But I think there's another issue now is that you must never ignore the reality of the world we live in, you know, whereas on the technical side, we could say there's a big movement away from basic linear television into digital television, streaming, as opposed to standard sitting on the settee watching with your mum and dad. The world changes and the women, the opportunity for women in sport is changing with it and we should recognise that and be part of that movement um, without getting stuck into small confines of are they, are they good enough? Are they really good enough? Why don't they go to Q school? I agree with all of that normally, but there are exceptional cases where you say there's a point to prove, a message to send out, a commercial attitude to exploit, wrap it all into one. It's a common sense decision, and sometimes common sense overrules everything. Well, that's a very good answer, Barry. I'd, I'd like to move on a little bit and talk about Ronnie O'Sullivan. I mean, he he is obviously Snooker's biggest star. He's a genius. We absolutely love watching him. Mm. He's also a massive pain for you, isn't he? I mean, he told me a couple no, of times ago that, no. Mil that, that Milton, Milton Keynes, he says to me, uh, drove the players mad. He said they were going crackers at the place. I mean, this is a venue that's kept you, you know, your, your road show on the road the last year. But Don't, don't. Listen, you've got to understand the difference between ordinary people like you and I and geniuses. <laughs> yeah. Geniuses are not ordinary people. No. They, that, that's what makes them geniuses to start with. So Ronnie O'Sullivan, who I've known since, what, he was 12 or 13 years old, he's a genius. Now, Max Higgins used to upset me. I don't get, I, you know, I don't get upset at all anymore with anybody in anything, in any mode of my life. What, what can they do to you? Nothing. They, they're entitled to their opinions, number one. I'd like it to be done in a nice and proper way. Sometimes Ronnie stretches that a bit. But he's Ronnie O'Sullivan. He's entire, I think, he, again, he's earned the right to have his own opinion. Most of it is crap. But at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference because it's his crap. And I'm a fan of Ronnie O'Sullivan. I will put up with a lot of things from Ronnie because I want to watch him play. I think he adds so much to the, the value of every tournament and he makes me excited to watch snooker played at a level of the god. And, and, and that would apply to a few other players as well. But Ronnie's got a bigger persona. So does he upset me? Not in the slightest. If he breaks the rules to a ridiculous extent, he will be disciplined, the same as anybody else. But he doesn't. He's quite smart. He sort of goes bald alive. <laughs> he doesn't really push it that much. And he'll have a little pop at me. And I, I think to myself, that's another headline. That's another, <laughs> that's another bit of publicity for snooker. You'd like Ronnie to go on for years and years, wouldn't you? Five, ten oh. years? Because he's, he, he's, he is ultimately... There's more to Snooker than Ronnie, of course, but he is still the Let biggest... Let me tell you this, he's got an invitational tour car for the rest of his natural life. No question. And anyone who criticises that doesn't understand what you owe people and what they've contributed to your enjoyment over the years. So, not a problem at all. I think he's been magnificent. The, the number of tournaments he's played... I mean, I know he knows about Milton Keynes... And for that, I mean, you, you've seen Ronnie's normal lifestyle. It doesn't revolve around Milton Keynes normally, does it? <laughs> He's paying a price for a sport he loves. That's the message I get. It, the more he moans about more Milton Keynes, the more I know how much he loves Milton Because he wouldn't put up with it for a second unless he was there for a reason. The boy loves the game. So the boy, he's not a boy, but to me he's a boy, right? The boy loves the game. And he likes to have a moan up. Good luck to him. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. He's been um, tremendously magnanimous with all these sort of losing final speeches this year. He's but he's had a lot really. of practice this year, hasn't he? Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask how you know him very well. Um, he takes it very well, takes it on the chin, but how much do you yeah, think he'll be hurting? You see, that's the point... That's the thing people don't actually understand about the animal that is Ronnie O'Sullivan. He likes money, of course he does. 
He likes to win, of course he does. There's something bigger. He likes to play snooker. I mean, he's lost a load of finals. I don't believe he's driven home going, balls, I lost another one. I think he's driven home thinking, ah, oh, I've got to get a bit better. I've got to do... He's still thinking like that. And it's a... I think that's a magnificent compliment to, to the player that O'Sullivan is. He's not satisfied to lose, but he's magnanimous in defeat. And I find that really reassuring that his ultimate goal is to win everything he wants. To, and it, but at the same time, I mean, I remember saying to him a few years ago, you, you'd be in the, and I think he agrees with me, you'll be in the top 16 for as long as you want. As long as you want, because you've got so much ability, even if you had 30% less ability, it's still going to be enough. You know, and he'll, he'll criticise the lower-ranked players, which I actually stopped doing that bit now, which is nice, because they're not. They're lower-ranked players because they haven't had the opportunity or, or they haven't yet got the ability, and, and in time, hopefully, they will. But he has got, you know, he's got ability that, that you can't teach someone. So he'll always be there while he wants to be there. And although he'll criticise things, he clearly wants to be there or he wouldn't turn up at all in the first place. Let's talk about another great star then, which is Judd Trump, the world number one, yeah. uh, having another unbelievable season. He had some words to say about schedule recently. Did you have any sympathy yeah. for Judd? Oh, no, I think... <laughs> I don't know. I think sometimes these boys get a little bit too much time to sit on their own, you know. They have too much time to think. I should give them a few more events to play in, shouldn't I? Judd's <laughs> um, a wonderful ambassador. Judd Trump is a wonderful player, a wonderful ambassador, and the likely successor to the people, the title of the people's champion. He's a lot, because of, because of the start of play, you know, I mean, uh, he, will, he will come out with a few little thoughts on his own about testing and all that. Um, I always say that some, usually these things are, are spoken about straight after a defeat, which is not the best time to interview anyone. But at the same time, when you when you think about it, it's like everything else. You know, concentrate on what you're good at. Great at playing snooker. You're not a doctor. You don't know about whether this test is good or that. Or do I? No, it's not. It's not what I'm good at. Um, but I think he's last two seasons. He's been a revelation, Trump. You know, he's been a real asset to the game. And uh, I think he's he's got a wonderful future. And, he will be, I think he'll develop into a major contributor to the success of snooker globally. I think the, the boy has got a lot more to give yet, personality-wise and talking-wise. I hope he doesn't go into, sometimes they go into critical mode out of boredom. You know, you sit around waiting for games in a, in a sort of very closed in environment and you have negative thoughts rather than positive thoughts. It's natural, isn't it? It's natural because... You can't go out and have an Indian and a pint. You know, you're restricted. You're living around in a schedule time. It's not good. It's not really healthy. But the side effect of that is that you will get negative thoughts because you get a little bit down on, on the environment, especially if you've had a loss as well. So you've got to expect, you have to expect human frailty, don't you? <laughs> You'd always rather see people speak their minds, as long as it's not gone too far. But even if you don't agree with them, it's slightly controversial. You'd rather hear players speak out. Was it not Voltaire that said, I fight with my life against the words you speak, but defend with my life your rights? That is lovely, yeah. That is a, that is a first. That is a Voltaire first for talking snooker there. <laughs> well, I felt, the, I felt the whole podcast needed a little bit of cultural uplifting. It definitely does. No question about it. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Barry. Um, we Everyone knows that you the, the progress made during the last 10, 11, 12 years since you came back to snooker has been tremendous. But I want to ask you a little bit about maybe the decade before that, when you were more distanced from the game. You were doing great things in darts. You're the work in boxing, involved with Orient. How much attention did you pay to snooker then from afar? And when did, when you did look at it, did it sadden you what was happening because the game was in such a poor state? Well, I mean, firstly, I never left. I was just a bit quieter. Mm. I've had this uh, same thing in boxing. People say to me, oh, you packed up doing boxing for a few years. I didn't. I packed up doing a lot less. 
Um, it's no good. We were still doing Champions, Champions, or Premier League snooker, things like that. Um, and snooker to me is like an old girlfriend. You know, that was my first real romance. You know, I'm a chartered accountant, destined to make money and be successful, and quite aggressive in my business world. Um, but snooker gave me a chance. That was my, my first girlfriend. In, in the sporting world. So I used to look at it, I mean, again, you'd have to write a movie on it in terms of, you know, the birth of Snooker, the meeting Davis, the 80s, the BBC coverage. Oh, I mean, it was license to print money, the overseas first, the lifestyle, first class, champagne, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and then the success that we'd created was frowned upon by the then governing body that got us, we should be doing this, not some, not an individual. It should be the game. But you see, the whole concept of, of the game being owned by players is wrong because they must automatically favour decisions that favour them. So it becomes a self-interest rather than for the benefit of the sport. And so eventually the tide turned and I became the pet noir of snooker and the governing body were quite anti-things I did. And, and I do what I always do. I made a, a shrewd business decision. It wasn't worth my time necessarily. Um, there were other activities that wanted me more. So, you know, we all like to go where we're welcome. Uh, and I, I walked away a little bit from, from snooker and went to other activities which were, were very successful. So it made me feel happy. Um, when I, It was frustrating for me to see mismanagement at the level um, but I'm realistic enough to know, do I want the aggravation? Do I want another fight? Do I, you know, I'm competitive, but it's like a boxer says, you know, I've been battered for eight rounds. I don't really want to come out for round nine. Um, but then the fighter inside you says, balls to it. You know, we go out on our shield one way or the other. And you go, and you do come out, you know, that's in that particular sport. So I went back in for, for round 11 or round 12, having been scarred before. And I remember Steve Davis saying to me, do you really want this? What, what do you want this for? Your life is perfect. You've got all this. You know, you're enjoying, you're happy. What do you want to go back? And I said, because it's like going back to my old girlfriend. You know, my life changed because of snooker. I don't forget things. I don't forget Jimmy White, what he did in Southeast Asia. I don't forget what Steve Davis did for me or what snooker did for me. So I said, I have a responsibility. I'm going to go back and give it, as I always would, my best shot. I went back and gave him my best shot. And of course, it was good enough because... I'm great. I'm not good. I'm great. I'm great. I'm great. Let's not let's not just play it down here. Done an unbelievable job with some unbelievable people working with me. And I won't be here forever or around forever. So the beauty of what I've created is the sustainability of the system and the operation. So I could disappear tomorrow and Snooker wouldn't suffer because of the basement and the foundations we built. And that was because I owed it one. I owed it. It changed my life. And I hope I've changed it for the better. And I think there's a lot more to go. Is in terms of, I mean, you promote a wide, diverse range of sports. Is snooker and boxing polar opposites in many ways? Um, is, is snooker the one you enjoy the most, or do you enjoy sort of the oh, I enjoy, rest of boxing? I, I enjoy the fishing. I enjoy ping pong. My life is about enjoying every single second of every single moment of every single hour. You know, that's what I do. If I didn't enjoy something, I'm old enough, rich enough, I wouldn't do it. I mean, the one thing I'm going to run out of, and it's not going to be money, I'm going to run out of time. So I have to enjoy everything I do. And that's why I can be a little bit terse with people occasions, because I haven't got time to waste my life listening to what Ronnie would call the numpties. And there are numpties around there. I don't agree with Ronnie's description, but my description is there are people around there that... I don't value their opinions because they're not built on the right principles or the right understanding of the position we're in. And I don't have time to understand and explain to everybody. So sometimes I will ride a little bit of rough shot over them. I'm getting slightly better at that, but, you know, it, it's frustrating because I can see, you know, you feel like you can see the, I feel like Martin Luther King coming out. I can see the dream. No, and we've lived the dream and the dream is coming on and we're not at the finish of the journey, but we are a good way down the road and we've got structure in place to drive us to the next level. And that's what's exciting for me and I want to make sure that I've got teams of people that share that work ethos. There is seven days in the week 
There is 24 hours in every day. Don't let the opposition, don't let anyone else have that advantage of you. Work ethic. Can't live with my work ethic. No one's ever been able to live with my work ethic. It doesn't make me the nicest person in the world. Want me on your side if bullets are flying around. Where did you get your optimism from, Barry? It fascinates me as a bit of a glass half empty man. Did it come from your background? You talk about your mother, or did it come from <laughs> your business? I don't know. I mean, my dad was a bus driver and he died very young. Mm. I'm cleaned houses and we, you know, we were on a council estate for 18 years on social. So I wanted things. I, I wasn't jealous. This is where, I, where I'm so anti barriers for entry or, you know, what school did you go to or what tie did you wear or what did your dad do here for business? And these were all barriers when I was growing up today. It might be more racial barriers. It might be sexual barriers. I don't know. But I don't like any barriers. I believe in ability. But I also, that follows that you must have the opportunity. Then if you have the desire, it's up to you. Some people have a, a calling. Some people want to be nurses or want to be vicars or, you know, lecturers. That, that's their calling and that's what they're happy to do. I wanted to, in a materialistic way, growing up, I saw the big houses on the hill and I wanted them. You know, and I didn't know how I was going to get it other than by working on because I'm not the smartest kid in the world. I like to tell everyone I'm super smart. Not really. Common sense. A lot of common sense. But it takes me 12 hours and someone else 8 hours. I do 16 hours. Twice as good as them. And I think we want to wind it up now, Bay. You've been very, very generous. Last point is going to be a nostalgia one. You've already mentioned Steve, of course, Steve Davis. It's 40 years this spring. I mean... Heavens above, since we saw you charge across the crucible floor, one of the great images from that famous arena. Does it feel like, ever since. Does it, what does it, does it feel like 140 years or like 40 minutes? What, what, or a bit, what's it like? I'll tell you in all honesty, because the reason I, I quite like doing these things because I get more out of this than you're getting out. You, don't, you may not understand. There's hardly a day, hardly a day goes by. I don't think of that day. Wherever I am in the world, whatever I'm doing, I will always keep my feet on the ground and I will always know who I am for real. No bullshit when you look in the mirror, is there? The day I ran out was, without doubt, the greatest day of my life. Superb. There's still plenty more to come. It could still be topped. Who knows? I don't think it can be topped. But I don't want it to be topped in a way because it was the opening of a chapter and someone, whether you're religious or not, gave me an opportunity which I've not walked away from. And, you know, there's ups and downs. Of course there are. That's life. But, you know, as you get older, I think you, look, you get a bit more reflective. You appreciate certain things among certain people that never change. And, and, I'm and happy. Then, I'm very happy and I've not wasted one second of my life. You, you look very happy, Bo. We can tell that. One final bonus question. You're going to wind down, aren't you, in the years to come? But you, yeah. won't, you won't say goodbye, will you, to sport? No, 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 no. It's inevitable. That I must also, I mustn't get into one of those tired old administrators seen in the past that just turn up for a couple of months. That's not my style. So I will be winding down sooner rather than later because I'm 73 in June. I mean, reasonable fitness shape, you know, not bad. There's a bit more fishing I want to do. There's a bit more. I'm just, just today, you're, this is a coup for you guys. I've just today accepted my first invitation to play cricket for the Essex over 70s, right? I'm playing in April and I can't, and I'm like so excited because I'm still competitive, although I'm absolutely useless at my age. But I want to do things that give me a buzz. And snooker's given me a massive. And actually, you know, although I've got a big head, I love the fact that we've made it to well, I love the fact that we've built it. And but I'm also realistic enough to know 
that everyone has their sell-by date. Mine is approaching, not from a complete walk away, but from an operational standpoint, this is a time to give other people the opportunity that you had. So go on, I've got you there. I've done it in boxing. And what I've seen my son do, this has convinced me that the time is right. What I've seen my son do in the last couple of years is do things I could not have had the imagination. We're all of us limited by our own imagination, but that's the only restriction. Sometimes these kids have got to be listened to. The youngsters have got to be given their chance. Maybe you still need a little bit of the old man with grey hair on the tiller at the back. Giving a little steer on direction. The blokes rowing the oars and the blokes putting the sails up. They're the future. They'll do for me. You, you've been listening to the Barry Hearn show here. <laughs> Barry, you've been an absolute delight. We really are most grateful for your time. My pleasure. Day. Good to talk to you, boys. Since and see you, I hope to see you at a Ram Fall Crucible. Time will tell. Time will certainly. Time will certainly tell. Well, we thoroughly enjoyed that, didn't we, Phil? What, what an absolutely smashing guest. And we, we, we'll say our goodbyes, but we'll be along next week to talk about the world qualifiers. Yeah, absolutely. Things are getting serious next week. Everyone will be in Sheffield battling for their place at the Crucible. And we might have a special guest then as well, but we'll confirm it just yet. We will confirm that hopefully in time. But uh, all the best for now. Do keep your thoughts coming in. Email us at talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talkingsnooker. But for now, for this very special episode from Barry, Phil and myself, cheerio for now. Sports Social Podcast Network.